Hey, welcome to another episode of the Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Hey, Adam. In this episode, we're going to be hearing from one of the three Republicans who's hoping to become that party's U.S. Senate nominee and take on Elizabeth Warren this fall. The candidate that you'll be hearing from in just a little bit is Beth Lindstrom, who, among other things, used to run the Massachusetts Lottery, was Consumer Affairs Director for former Governor Mitt Romney, and managed Scott Brown's come-from-nowhere win over Martha Coakley for the U.S. Senate a few years back. Peter, before we get to our conversation with Lindstrom, I got to ask you how you've been thinking about this particular race. You and I were there at the uh, Mass GOP convention in Worcester a few months back. I don't even think that you and I sitting here in the office have talked a lot about the GOP Senate contest since then. So how have you been wrapping your brain around this particular electoral fight? Well, I've tried, but there's not a lot to wrap our brains around. It's either been criminally undercovered or it's a stealth campaign. Um, I think there's an element of stealth campaign because uh, Jeff Deal feels like he's the front runner yeah. and is not doing anything to endanger that position. Listen, when we were at the convention, it was pretty clear that to me that Deal was going to take the nomination. I based that, by the way, on just all the signs and stickers and buttons I saw. Now, when you say he was going to take the nomination, do you mean the ultimate nomination to, to take on Elizabeth Warren or the endorsement of the convention? I meant the endorsement of the convention. And for Thank- the record, I have made that same mistake myself yeah. on more than one occasion. So, But, uh, you know, a funny thing happened that day. I was so struck by the strength of his numbers there that I really spent a lot of time talking to Deal supporters. First of all, they were not what I would stereotypically say with what I thought of as Republicans. You know, this was not a country club crowd. These were small business owners, um, very blue collar. And by blue collar business owners, I mean people owning like auto repair shops or hair salons. You know, these were owners who got their hands dirty along with their workers. They were also lovely people. None of them that I talked to really thought Deal had a chance of beating Elizabeth Warren. Now, they wanted to send Warren a message, a very strong message. Now, listen, I think they spoke very freely. I had my WGBH News badge and my credentials. But um, I wasn't taking names. I wasn't writing things down. I I wanted to hear what they really thought. There were varying degrees of unsatisfaction with Senator Warren, and they really wanted, they hoped his campaign would really send her a message. And by the way, they liked Jeff Deal a heck of a lot. But it was a funny thing to happen at the political convention. They struck me as being very realistic, Hmm. not to hold the election before it's happened. Whomever wins the Republican primary is going to have a real fight in the hands with incumbent Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, she doesn't have Charlie Baker numbers, but still a big chunk more people view her positively than view her negatively. And yeah, if you were betting, you'd certainly bet on her cruising to re-election, I guess? Yeah, I mean, again, I hate to prejudge the election, but even well before the convention, I thought that the best person 
in the abstract, a woman would give Senator Warren a harder run than a man would. And now maybe I'm a prisoner of the Scott Brown experience. He was pretty inept in running against her, I thought. His negativity played positively to his base, but it really fired up the Warren base. I don't know. I think a race between two women would not be as lopsided, at least going in. Before we hear from the one woman who is hoping to take on Elizabeth Warren, let me ask you, did you run into any Beth Lindstrom supporters at the SRP convention? And did they have a similar take on their uh, candidates' viability as the Jeff Deal people? No, they didn't. They were, it's a long shot. You know, frankly, the Lindstrom supporters were hoping to, to, to do better at the convention. They really wouldn't talk about Interesting. Down the road, where the deal supporters were pretty confident, not cocky, but confident about how they would do that day in Worcester. All right. Well, without further ado, let's take a listen to the conversation that you and I had just a few hours ago, actually, with Beth Lindstrom, and then we'll come back and briefly revisit what we just heard. I want to get your take on the state of the campaign at Mm -hmm. this point in time. It has been my sense from the outside that ever since Jeff Deal got the endorsement of the convention, that he's basically decided to coast, that he thinks he has this thing in the bag and he's going to not engage you and John Kingston publicly and just operate that way through to primary day. Is that an accurate reading of what's going on in this race? Well, we have definitely been challenging him to debates. Uh, Right after the convention, we received about five to seven requests for um, dates to debate. And uh, I believe he's maybe accepted one radio debate. So we are pushing. We actually sent a certified letter to his office to say the voters need to see us. They need to hear our differences. They need to understand you know, how, where we stand on the issues. And for, for me, I believe primaries are good and they bring out the best. And so the person who is going against the general will, uh, will be better practiced after having these conversations. My recollection is that the one debate that he has accepted is the Boston Herald radio debate, right? Am I correct correct. about that? That's, that's correct. But there are other, um, televised debates that are out there and hoping that he will lock in those dates. If you do have a chance to engage Jeff Deal uh, on a stage or live in front of an audience, what will you go after him on? What will your big criticisms of him as a candidate hoping to take on Elizabeth Warren be? Or how will you make the case that you would be more viable? So let me say that uh, we see state conventions are always made up of the the activists of the group. So that was about 2,500 people that, um, and in the first round, he didn't even get 50% of the vote. So, uh, and which I believe we we just wanted to get our 15% and we got 30%. So I believe we overperformed. And then you go to the 300,000 people in potentially in in the primary. But I always remind people too that Steve Pierce won the convention and Bill Weld won the primary. So there's a long time uh, in between there. So if you're asking what are the differences between uh, myself and Jeff Deal? I was trying to, and I was very inartful. Yeah, thank you. So um, the differences that I see is that he is a politician. And he's served four terms. Uh, He wanted to run for the next seat in his district for state senate, uh, which bodes the question of when asked whether he was put in front of Elizabeth Warren, would you stick out your six years? And he's saying that, you know, she's not being honest with people in Massachusetts. Well, he didn't, you know, it's a little bit hypocrite 
because he, you know, if he was elected to state senate, he wouldn't have served out. So um, I think that that's that's certainly a difference, and that's what politicians do. They seek the next level, just like Elizabeth Warren is seeking the run for president. Uh, Jeff Deal is just seeking the next office, and that's what he's doing here. So that, that's a difference. I'm not a politician. I've been a citizen activist. I've been around politics. I've I've helped elect a lot of people. Um, Certainly as a Republican, and there's another difference, that I've been the only person in the Republican Party for 30 years. Jeff was a Democrat up to 2008 and then decided uh, to run for that, that seat. You look at John Kingston, he left the party, spent a million dollars on the third-party candidate. So when we talk about who's actually been in the trenches helping uh, people get elected over 30 years, that would, that would be me, and that would be a very big difference. You mentioned Elizabeth Warren. And I've got to ask you, Elizabeth Warren told Mass Live a while ago that she would serve out her term in the Senate. Yet the Boston Globe and the New York Times and many, many other news outlets are writing stories based on the assumption that she's running for president. Now, let's forget about deal. What do you make of this? Well, she uses the term in a present tense. I'm running for U.S. Senate. I'm not running for president. You just add on the word today. And I think that's her explanation. So, But everything she is doing, she's showing that she has intentions of running for president. When she's going to Nevada, when you're going to swing states, when you're you know, writing a book, when you're giving money to the Democrat state parties across the country, those are actions that give people some pause to say, okay, what's the motive there? And so my interpretation of her motive is that she is running for president. Is that necessarily a bad thing as Massachusetts voters see it? I mean, we have a long, honorable history of people in Massachusetts running for president, including your former I boss, was, Mitt Romney. I was so is it possible you, I know, have framed her potential presidential candidacy as a negative. Is it possible that people in Massachusetts who are going to be voting in this election actually like that? Not the people that I'm talking to around the state, and I talk to a lot of people. But let me go back to your point about Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney said he was thinking about running for president, and he did finish his term. He did not take a second term as governor. So that's different. Uh, Noted. I, yeah, point taken. I just wanted to point you that, yeah. that, you know, Massachusetts that's has seemed to me to, yes, to, to kind of like it when people who are local go national and seek the highest office in the land. So what I hear from people when I'm out there, they ask me, what has she done? And you see when Scott Brown was elected a U.S. senator in the two and a half, three years that he was there, he went over to the White House under a Democrat president and signed bills. We have not seen so much of that with our current U.S. senator. So this is what they say. What has she done? Along with they can't imagine her being a Republican. Excuse me. No. So people ask, what has she done? And that, and they want to see somebody who is actually going to produce results for them and whomever is the president. But they haven't seen that for her. They believe that she's been in campaign mode since she started. And rather than really getting bills passed. She can file as many bills as she wants, but you have to create those relationships to get things passed. And I think that's what they see. They don't see her really delivering for the people of Massachusetts, the majority of people in Massachusetts. I mean, she might be, you know, talking to her activists and her supporters, but when I'm out there talking to a lot of people around the state, I do get a different reaction. But right now you're talking with the people who you need to talk to to try to win the Republican primary, right? You're talking with, or, or am I, I it's, well, since this is radio, let me down. say that yep. you arched your eyebrows a little bit when I said that. So well, but back to you. 
I go, I go everywhere. I've been to parades. I've been, you know, I, eight parades in 100-degree weather um, over July 4th. I talk to a lot of people. They're just not there because they're independents or Republicans. Uh, they're Democrats. And I, matter of fact, was even out in Western Mass last week and had a Democrat say to me that he said, Beth, I can't vote for you in the primary, but you sure have got my vote in the general. So, and I'm hearing this and seeing this over and over again. So she does not have unanimous support from her Democrat voters. You, it seems to me, and the other candidates for uh, for Senate on the Republican side have I feel like a, a tricky challenge at this particular point in American political history because you are seeking the nomination, courting a state Republican Party that is very high on President Trump. But then you're going to have to turn around if you are the nominee and in the general seek the support of a general electorate that is pretty down on the president, especially compared to other states in the U.S. My recollection from the, the latest uh, massing poll done by Steve Cazella for WBUR is that it's basically two to one, as it has been for a while, that people disapprove of the president. Mm -hmm. How do you thread that needle? That strikes me as a really tricky balance to have to to have to strike. So what I say with regard to our president is I say I will agree with him when it's right for people of Massachusetts and I'll disagree when it's not. But I'll always respect the office of the president. And I've sat on boards and I've sat on executive teams. And if you always check the box or if you never say anything, then I don't think you're doing your job. And I think people in Massachusetts would want somebody who's got an independent mind, who gets the data brings people around the table, and then makes the right decision for the people of Massachusetts. That's who you work for. Now, I agree with the president on some policy, on tax reform, on immigration, on deregulation, on our foreign policy. But where I differ, where I say the three T's, and that's tone, temperament, and Twitter. So when you say you differ with him on tone, temperament, and Twitter, uh, and agree with him in these other policy areas, any policy disagreements that voters who are not keen on the president might want to know about? Yeah, spending. Spending. We have a big deficit, and we need to get that under control. And I think that we need to do zero-based budgeting. I think Congress's uh, whole job is to produce a budget for the people of the United States. So they need to do their their work. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think we need to decide what is uh, in the nice-to-have category versus what is necessary. And I think we need to reel in some of this spending. Let me ask you to characterize in one word President Trump's performance in Helsinki with um, President Putin. So I would say it was disappointing. And I have said that you know we should be meeting with world leaders. That's foreign policy. We should be doing those things, having these conversations. It goes back to whomever is the president. You, you, you're a world leader. You need to have conversations. What was disappointing was that he didn't challenge Putin publicly about their bad behavior. Because we do know that they were meddling in, a, in our democracy, in our elections. And that's not a Republican or a Democrat issue. That's an American issue. Disappointing is a perfectly good word, and that, that's your word. It, it strikes me, speaking for myself, inadequate. And I'm basing that on even Fox News, his biggest media cheerleader, sort of let him have it. Some parts of Fox. Some parts of Fox News. George Will, granted, no longer a Republican, but I think one of our leading conservative columnists, basically called him a pretty sorry state of a politician. Well, and, and former Governor Romney called uh, his performance a disgrace. That was the word he used. 
So I think what the underlying question is here, and especially from where the media's standpoint is, is, is he soft on Russia? And my opinion is that he's not. I mean, you, I think he's much stronger than Obama was on Russia. You look at uh, the red line over in Syria, the you know Russian-backed Assad regime, where the president retaliated. That's a much stronger stance. You look at uh, keeping the sanctions on the annexation of Crimea. That's still strong. You look at supply- it's strong for now, but it's worth pointing out that he's suggested in recent days that maybe the annexation of Crimea is okay because they speak Russian in Crimea. He seems in inclined to deviate from the vast majority of the American foreign policy establishment, Democratic and Republican, right? Well, today. But, you know, you look at trying to create everybody to come to the table and and supplement their military spending. You look at being against the, the gas pipeline between Germany and Russia, because that would put Germany in a place where we don't think that's good. So my point is, everybody's trying to eyeball whether this is a, a you know, a, a kowtowing to Putin or whether he's strong enough to do that. You um, can tell Peter and I are both all worked up about this. Okay, I, I want to grab a question after you, Peter. Actually, I was going to say that I, I think that while I'm very critical of President Trump, I don't think it can be denied that when it comes to things about le- NATO's level of defense spending and West Germany's reliance on natural gas from the Soviet Union and, I might add, Massachusetts, that President Trump is on the right track. But since we were on foreign policy, I want to ask you to define for us what America's mission in Afghanistan is. Well, I am a peace through strength type of person. Do I know what everyone's thinking on Afghanistan? I would leave it up to the generals because they are the boots on the ground, and that's when when people are closest to what's going on, that's when we have the best results. I was just actually meeting with a former Navy SEAL in Haverhill last week, and he has real-time conversations with those his friends who are still there. And the difference is, under Obama, they were discouraged. But today, letting them have more of control of the situation, they are staying in. They're not getting out of their service. So we do have to be a superpower. We have to watch what's going on in the world. Does that mean pulling everybody out? I don't know. You need to rely on the generals on the ground. I actually went to Army War College, um, was nominated to go probably about maybe four or five years ago. And it was really an interesting opportunity for me because they bring in civilians to have these conversations with these generals or, uh, who are training strategically. And there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes of what they know, which we don't know. And do you say, is that right or is that not right? Regardless, you have to put the strategy in the hands of people who are the experts. They've been in the military. They've been looking at what's going on for so long. So, you know, do we need to still have a presence there? Possibly, because we might need to prevent what might happen next. I don't have that answer. Since there is so much to talk about right now when it comes to foreign policy, I want to run two more questions by you, and then I'll let Peter get a word in edgewise. President Trump, in an interview with Tucker Carlson, questioned the mutual defense clause of NATO, uh, suggesting that maybe we shouldn't be obligated to hop to the defense of another NATO country if they were attacked. What do you think about that? Well, I think the creation of NATO was important because of the saying, attack one, attack all. And that even, I guess it's Article 5 or whatever, came into play after 9-11 for us. So you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That's certainly one of the reasons why I've jumped into this race, because... We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and and you never know. So 
I, I think, but it's important for us to have allies and to nurture those relationships so that we all feel that uh, the playing field is equal, that we're contributing. It's just like your family sitting around the, the table. I mean, if you've got kids and they say, well, you know, you got more than, he's got more than, you know, you need to create that coalition so everybody feels comfortable and good about what, why they're sitting at the table. So is this a case where if you were in the U.S. Senate, you would push back against the president and say, no, actually, the uh, Article 5 is a, a worthwhile provision. It's important to us and, and to other NATO member states. Yes, I would. I feel strongly about that. And one other question, this might be what Peter was going to ask. Uh, hitting closer to home, the president seems to have a beef with Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada. Uh, we are engaged in what seems to be a trade war with Canada. Canada happens to be, I believe, Massachusetts' uh, biggest international trading partner. What do you think about that? Well, I am a f um, free trade person, and I believe that the president's ultimate goal truly is to have free trade. And I think he even put that on the table up at Canada, and no one you know, said anything after that. But I also, as I said before, do I disagree with some of his style? Yes, I do. So what we need to do is, is see how things go. Do I want to have tariffs? No. But if there are some bad actors there or the deal's not good, then short-term, targeted, bring us back to balance is the way that we should go. I would be supportive of that, but you have to revisit that. I mean, certainly I think the end game was China, looking at, you know, the, the bad behavior f from that country. But I think in the end, you want free trade because we have great workers in America. We, we can compete. We just, well, we need to have a level playing field. Name an issue that has not yet come up in the campaign and one that we certainly have brought up because we're not pretending to be encyclopedic here. But what do you think there's an important issue that isn't receiving the attention it deserves at the moment? Mental health. You know, you look at a lot of what's going on in our state. And I am talking to a lot of people. Matter of fact, yesterday I met with a mom who lost her son to the opioid addiction. And a lot of underlying motive or the root cause of some of the things that we're seeing is about mental health, whether it's how you know children feel at school because whether they have you know learning disabilities, and how it molds us as a society. And I think we need to pay attention to that, whether it's that person who did struggle with an addiction, and what is the right care, and how are we doing, how are we working together to provide that. I think there's a root cause of that because it's harder in society today, especially for our children and our young adults with you know devices and video games and so forth. And I was just at the Weymouth uh, police vigil the other night. And with, you know, what, where we need to kind of dial it back of our civility with each other and what we care about. So it's, I, I just think there's a lot to look at there. Interesting answer, and I mean that as a compliment. The Republican Party nationally, however, strikes me as being health care hostile in that, it's not that they're opposed to doctors, but, again, the party nationally seems resistant to any sort of collective medical care. I mean, we're really the only advanced industrial nation that doesn't have comprehensive care, and it's and President Trump and the Republican Party have been dedicated to rolling it back without really having anything to put in place. How does someone like you who has an honest interest in 
an issue like mental health. How do you work within the party on something like that? Well, I've been a Republican for 30 years because of my fiscal conservatism. Um, and so that's why I've stayed as a Republican in my peace through strength, making sure that we have a strong military. So those are my basis of being a Republican. When it comes to health care, I mean, I did sit on Governor Romney's cabinet when we introduced Romney Care and using some free market principles. And then you had you know, the Affordable Care Act that came in. These are difficult issues to solve because you're talking about insurance. That's the bottom line. Uh, my concern is in Massachusetts, and we cover so many people, uh, we need to tweak it, we need to fix it. I think that rather than going to where Elizabeth Warren wants to go into single payer and socialized medicine, and I'll tell you, I did sit with a gentleman, um, and his biggest concern as he was educating me was saying, Beth, you know, if in fact that happens, we lose the opportunity for innovation in this country for research and development. You see the European countries coming to the United States and setting up their R&D because when you have a government-run system, it puts a damper on any incentive for research and development. And we are almost two years away from possibly an Alzheimer's uh, medication. So how do you say to people who are looking for these answers to, you know, these medical issues that we're just going to, you know, squash any of that innovation. So to me, that's a, that's a big no. We do have medical care here in Massachusetts. Other states should look at our model and see if they can replicate it. So to me, I don't think we should, you know, we should be looking on how we tweak the system and try to improve it. And where do we need to spend our money? I mean, like I go back to when you're a business person, which I am, small business person, I've been involved in four startup companies, you have to decide what you want to spend your money on and, and then you zero-based budget and to that of what you have and what is there for you to spend and what's important. And I think that, you know, right now where we're going in our society, some of the uh, mental health issues should be uh, taken um, a closer look at. I think we're approaching the time where you need to duck out because uh, where are you going to be going after our conversation, which I should mention is is happening in a sort of a sleekly generic office building in Woburn, <laughs> which is always beautiful in the summer. So, But where are you heading after this? Um, I am going to Townsend for a meeting with a local uh, activist, and then I'm going to Gardner to meet with Mayor Hawk and do some local business visiting. Before you duck out, is there anything that Peter and I have not given you a chance to talk about uh, that we should have, that you want to weigh in on before we go? Yes. So let me talk about my pitch to voters about my candidacy. And from my perspective of where I've not been a politician, and I'm a small business owner, mom of, of three kids, I have a different perspective than certainly my opponents because of my leadership in some government positions that I've held. But also... I am the only person who can beat Elizabeth Warren in the general election. And I think that that's really important for voters to take a look at because of the stance of Jeff Deal being a, a politician, because of the pay raise issues that he has, you know, said he was voted against it and then he took it. So I just have that different perspective. I just have a different lens. Let me ask you, if you are the nominee, won't Democrats, including Elizabeth Warren, come back and say, Hold on a second. Beth Lindstrom ran the state lottery. Beth Lindstrom was Mitt Romney's director of consumer affairs. Beth Lindstrom managed Scott Brown's successful campaign. You, you managed his win, right, when he beat uh, when he beat Martha Coakley. Isn't that going to be the pushback, and doesn't that make it hard for you to lay claim to sort of an outsider's anti-politician or, or apolitical mantle? Well, I have been around it. I have not been elected. 
And I also have been involved in four startup companies. I know what it's like to go risk capital, work really hard, try to build a better mousetrap, and that's very different. So I could have stayed in government for years, but I didn't because I have a different view of the world of trying to you know, create jobs and, and to challenge myself in different ways. Can you tell us just a tiny bit, and then we'll let you go, uh, about the startups that you were involved with? Sure. I mean, one was, you know, right after the, the dot-com boom and trying to do a marketing website. Um, and that's when people were spending a half a million dollars on building their websites back then. So these are very different um, than today. Certainly others are in geolocation mobile app company, um, another market research company. But actually, I'm a small business owner today, and I have a salon and day spa in my hometown of Groton. And um, I'm actually moving it from the location to the center of town because of the tax reform and because of the ability for us to have a little bit more money to invest and try to create more jobs. So that's where I sign the front of a paycheck. And that's a very different and stark contrast also. Right. Beth Lindstrom, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today and good luck. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So Peter, like I said earlier on, you and I had that conversation with Beth Lindstrom a couple hours ago. You've had time to process it. Uh, what do you make of the way she pitched herself when you and I sat down with her? Very sincere. I'd never met her before. I knew her by reputation. She's not as slick as I expected her to be. I agree. I think I mean that as a compliment. She came across as very original. By the way, the first few times I met now Senator Warren on the campaign trail. Warren's uh, very different than Beth Lindstrom. She's an academic, not a yeah, political but, operative. But, I, but I have to say, one of the things I found so appealing about the Warren candidacy was that there was something a little bit green about her then. You know, yes, she was used to standing up before all the brainiacs at Harvard Law School and ruling the roost. Um, the Barneys, as our old colleague Brendan Lynch would say. <laughs> But I have to say, I liked Beth Lindstrom. She was very approachable. She's a smart woman. And I think what makes her, her appealing as a candidate is she knows who she is. She knows what she stands for. But she doesn't pretend to know what she doesn't know. Let me give you an example. When I was asking her about uh, Afghanistan, she gave a, you know, a relatively stock answer, a Republican answer, a Trumpian answer that she thinks it's best in the hands of the generals. Now, what the listeners don't know is they couldn't see the expression on her face. Um, to me, anyway, I don't know how it came across with you. It was a sincere opinion. Now, I don't buy that point of view. I think we've been there for 13 years and the generals haven't done us very well. But that's my opinion. Yeah. We're talking about her opinion. Her opinion was sincerely delivered. It's a small thing. But I think for a new candidate, um, sincerity is a plus. Now, by the way, Elizabeth Warren has sincerity in spades. She's become much more fiery. She's got much more experience. That's why I'm particularly interested in seeing a clash between two women from very different ideological camps who I bet in private 
would probably get along fairly well. Well, you you uh, got ahead of me there because I wanted to ask you, did the conversation we had with Lindstrom leave you convinced, as you had said you were going into it, that, that a contest between a female challenger and Warren would be fascinating to behold? It sounds like the answer is yes. Yeah, I think it will be. I think it would be interesting. Not an endorsement. It's not an endorsement at all. I, I, you and I have talked privately about you know, the effects that the increased participation of women in politics has had. As we were saying, driving back from our interview, I think tonally, women in politics has made a real difference. It's made it less locker roomy. It's made it more serious, not more solemn. It's made it more focused, I think. And uh, I don't know, from a sheer point of view as a spectator, I'd like to see how these two very different women would approach each other. The Trump issue would be fascinating to see how they play that. I mean, there could be real fireworks from both sides. I don't know. As for that matter, would arguments that they might have over the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, which is a topic that we didn't even get to in our conversation with Lindstrom because we were so focused on foreign policy. Yeah, no, I mean, that in particular would be would be uh, fascinating to watch because that, of course, is going to be a real strong point for Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Peter Kansas, thanks as always for your thoughts. Thanks as always to all of you who took the time to listen. That's going to do it for this episode of The Scrum. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.